Warrior Woman, welcome back to the Warrior School podcast. This is episode 222. We are going to do a Q&A special baby. To be honest, I don't really want to record this today. <laughs> uh, but it's Wednesday, so that means it's podcast day. And we show up. And I've tried to show up being very curious, which is what I always encourage my warriors to do when it comes to training. But I just, yeah, I don't feel like recording a podcast. Uh, I've tried to record the intro a couple of times. My voice is a little off today. Some days the voice, it just really comes out. It feels juicy. Uh, it feels... There's this sense of ease uh, and other days it just feels a little uh, strained, a little constricted, a little squeezed. It just takes a little bit more uh, effort and energy to get the voice out. Uh, and I think that's probably my biggest friction today that I feel around recording the podcast. It just feels strained. Not that... I don't love what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I totally do. I love Q&A specials. I actually want to do more of them. And I've previously done a Q&A special episode 143 and 144. It was a two-part series because she was meaty and juicy and beefy. And so I wanted to split her in two parts. Uh, and so I've also split this into two parts because, again... It's a little meaty, a little beefy, a little juicy, and would probably go on for many hours if I didn't break it up. So we're going to dive straight in. Uh, no, this is what's going on in my world. We're going to get straight into our penetrate straight into the episode. In the first part of this Q&A, and potentially I'll even do a three part because I got quite a few questions, but the first one, we're going to look at uh, how I use my whoop. Do I like it? What do I think about it? Would I recommend it to you? Then we're going to talk about how alcohol affects our hormones. And we'll wrap up this part one with talking about how to breathe and brace during lifts. Is that cool? Okay. So let's talk about my whoop. The question that I got asked was, how do you like your whoop? Would you suggest it to others? So... October last year, October 2022, I was uh, at the sauna with Carson and a good friend. Uh, this good friend is also a coach who specifically specializes in youth athletes uh, performance and in particular the hockey space. So he was a professional uh, goalie uh, for ice hockey for those who are uh, live down under when when we talk about hockey down under we're always talking about field hockey when they talk about hockey here they're always talking about ice hockey uh, and he had a whoop on and he had had it for uh, about a year or so and so I was asking him about it and around this time I was also thinking about creating uh, another pillar or arm um, for warrior school. So warrior school has the warrior way model. And 
it is it well it was based on three key things and last year I decided to add in a fourth pillar so the first arm of the warrior way model is uh the vision and the warrior's mindset the second is uh all around energy and endurance so creating your food strategy and the third was all around training building your foundation and last year i decided to add in performance so this fourth pillar of the warrior way model and so i've been doing uh my own research data collection and planning this pillar for about a year and I've actually just uh, plugged into my calendar uh, for the end of the year I'm taking two weeks uh, at the from Christmas time through to the first week of the new year to do a lot of planning and one of those weeks I'm actually going inside to circle which is our community platform and I'm going to Uh, overhaul it, redo it, redo all of the the content, the way that it's presented. Uh, And one of the things that I'm going to do is really build out this performance pillar. Uh, So for the women that come into Warrior School, they spend a year with me, you know, really building their foundation, really focusing on the first three uh, and then I'll always say to to women and to people that, you know, when I'm speaking about this training health stuff, it really takes a year for you to become the woman that has a strong foundation, for you to really transform into, you know, to this different person that trains consistently, that has strong biofeedback, that has a really strong foundation. Once we get to a year, it gets really fun after that that's where like we can really step into this performance space and the training hard space and where we can really push to get really big um, long-lasting changes and so part of this you know the research uh, for me to build out this pillar of warrior school was looking at more performance data performance metrics or metrics for human performance So the biofeedback side of things. Now, for those of you who know me, you know my approach, uh, you know my very fluid, dynamic uh, nature. (laughs) I had never worn a device before. So I'd never worn a Fitbit, uh, an Apple Watch, uh, an aura ring. I've worn a heart rate monitor. So I used to own um, a heart rate monitor when I used to run a lot, but that was it. And so I've subjectively uh, collected, you know, data, biofeedback for the last seven, eight, you know, for a decade. Since I really started to keep a training diary, I've kept a training diary since 2012. And then when I got really interested in female physiology, my menstrual cycle, I started to uh, track my cycle. And I've been doing that for about seven, eight, nine, nine years now. And so for me, I've always really looked at the uh, subjective performance metric biofeedback side of things. But there's this whole other world uh, that 
has objective data where we can actually really track objectively certain metrics and biofeedback. And so I got the whoop last year. So it's almost been a year and I really didn't want to talk a lot about it until I had at least, you know, a good six, nine, 12 months uh, worth of data experience uh, <laughs> with with the device. Uh, and I definitely didn't want to have any less than a year really um, researching all of this stuff before I started to build it out inside of Warrior School. So really WHOOP is a device. Uh, sometimes you might see it on my wrist when you see the videos of the podcast or when I'm training. It just looks like a black strap that sits on your wrist. It can also go on your arm. Uh, I believe they also make the device that can go inside your clothing. And it was designed to monitor metrics so humans could improve their performance. So what do I mean when I talk about metrics or biofeedback? I'm talking about uh, certain things that we can monitor that tell us the health or the functionality of our body. So we can monitor our sleep, we can monitor our heart rate, our temperature, our respiratory rate, our um, training, uh, we can monitor our menstrual cycle, our appetite. You know, there's all of these things that I've spoken about before on the podcast. We call that biofeedback. Bio meaning biology, like our physiology, uh, and feedback meaning data. And so the idea with a device really is for us to track these metrics that then allow us to see how we're actually living uh, and how that is impacting the health and function of our body, which then obviously impacts uh, our uh, training, our recovery, you know, our relationships, uh, you know, how we show up in our life. So I wanted to talk through, uh, you know, what the WHOOP tracks and how it tracks uh, a few, I'm going to talk through five, uh, five kind of key vital metrics. And then I'll talk through how I use those five and then what I've learned from using it over the last year. And then a little project that I've been working on based on wearing it. Now, what I will say is that do you need something like this? You know, do you need to wear a Whoop, an Apple Watch, an Aura ring? You don't need to do it. <laughs> you can learn so much about your body and yourself, uh, your biofeedback, looking at your subjective data, which you'll see a bit of an overlap when I talk about some of these metrics uh, that we track and measure through using the WHOOP. You can definitely do that more subjectively. Now, do I think it's a really cool tool to use to learn more about yourself, to feel more connected to your body, to yourself, to your habits, your behaviors? Uh, yes, 
I do. For me, there's always uh, there's always kind of a bit of a I guess like if you look think about a pyramid, like the the base of that pyramid, uh, and then we're working up to kind of the point of that pyramid. Certain tools like the Whoop or the you know the tracking devices, they definitely come up a little higher on the pyramid for me than maybe some other coaches. I think that a lot of us have a disconnection problem from our body and ourselves. And I think one of the most powerful ways is start to to learn subjectively uh, without having more data, more consumption, kind of uh, creating interference with you know with us trying to create a stronger connection to the body so for me that bottom of that pyramid definitely focuses on subjectively uh, tracking and learning about our body and creating that connection and then a bit higher up when we're really focusing on definitely performance uh, maybe pushing ourselves when we're really trying to tweak to get more out of the strategy the plan when we've definitely got that strong foundation then we can use things like the devices now I'm sure people will argue that you know these are great to actually um, you know to help motivate you at the start of your journey when you're building your foundation and for some they probably actually I think there's even a bit of research that Whoop has done that they can definitely motivate you. You know, when you're looking at your recovery score and your sleep score, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, for some people that can be really motivating to actually uh, cultivate better habits, behaviors, actions, choices, so they can get a better result. Uh, and some people work really well with that kind of pressure. <laughs> And that very hard objective data. Uh, other people, it doesn't work that well for them. And so you just have to, to figure out, okay, what works well for you? Because you can go really far with the subjective stuff, which I've spoken about loads before. And really, we're looking at the same things. It's just from a subjective perspective uh, instead of having actual solid objective data both are important we do need to do both it just depends when uh on the individual where you're at uh and yeah how, how we're going to use that okay so let's talk about the metrics for performance so essentially what whoop is saying is that in order to perform as a human and that doesn't have to necessarily be in the gym or in our sport. That could be in life. You know, when I think of performance, performance for me is not just performing in training. It's performing in life. It's showing up as powerfully as we can in our jobs, our careers, our businesses, our relationships, our family, uh, in all areas of our lives. We've, we want to perform. We want to do great work. We want to make an impact. We want to have powerful relationships. Uh, and then we've got the, the physical performance side of things where we want to perform. Yeah, we want to get damn strong and create a body that we love. We want to push ourselves. We want to be able to train hard. 
we want to be able to perform in the gym and everywhere else in our life. And so in order to do that, we need strong biofeedback. We need a strong, healthy body that functions. So let's talk about some biometric data points uh, that Woot measures for human performance. So essentially, when we, with, when we think about performing at our best every day, it really requires an understanding of all of this stuff that we're going to talk about. So we really have this dynamic relationship between our, you know, our physical body or our physical exertion, the mental load that we take on, especially as women. You know, we take on such a, a massive mental load when it comes to the family and the family unit. Uh, then we've got like our sweet sleep quality, our general health, uh, and our body's ability to really bounce back or recover from life. The first uh, biometric data point that WHOOP tracks is sleep. And they do actually claim that WHOOP is one of the most accurate non-invasive sleep monitors that currently exists. And what they're looking at is trying to quantify sleep quality. So it's not just about the amount of sleep, it's the quality of sleep that you get. So what they do is they track it in stages. So we have four different stages when we sleep. We have slow wave sleep or deep sleep, REM, light and awake. And each stage serves a different purpose in your recovery. And so through tracking it, we can... One, understand how much sleep that we need based on recent sleep patterns, the strain from the day, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, any sleep debt that we've accrued, uh, our recovery score. And then once we understand how much sleep we need, we can look at optimizing that sleep performance. So we want to think about sleep uh, from a performance perspective. It's not just okay, I, you know, maybe I'll get my seven hours or my eight hours. And it's about the quality within those hours. We want to optimize our sleep performance. And so by tracking, okay, how long were we awake for? How long were we in deep sleep for? REM sleep, light sleep. And what we really want to see is we want to see more deep and REM sleep Uh, than wakefulness and light sleep because that deep uh, SWS and REM sleep is where we really recover. So then we can look at, okay, well, what do I need to do to optimize our sleep performance? Uh, Okay, what's what's my wakeful events? Uh, You know, how many hours am I spending in each stage? What are some of my stats? So Woot will track your respiratory rate, your temperature, um, you know, your oxygen. And then it can deliver recommendations on how to get a better night's sleep. So then we can start to build an optimal sleep schedule. And so it will help you schedule your bedtime, your wake times based on how strenuous your day was, when you need to wake up, you know, if you're looking to perform or peak, uh, And then we can also set like custom alarms that wake you up when we're fully rested or at a specific time. So when we get into the green recovery, the alarm can go off. Then we can look at our trends. And, you know, I've spoken about this before. What matters is patterns over time. 
trends over time. So whether we're doing that subjectively or objectively, we don't want to base it on one data point or even a week's um, worth of data points. You know, we really want weeks, months, years, uh, if we can, to identify patterns and then build a better bedtime routine or build better sleep. Uh, So that's the first thing that it does. The second thing is that it tracks strain. So they call it strain and it's really understanding the impact of everything that you do. So everything in your daily life. So whether you're out for a run or you're, I'm doing this podcast right now, or you're in the yard doing gardening or you're lifting weights, it's measuring all of the physical and mental demands put on your body. And that results in what they call a strain score. And that represents really your body's total daily exertion. Uh, Because remember, it's not just about physical exertion. We also actually um, exert a lot mentally. And so they're measuring strain. Now, strain is a measure of cardiovascular and muscular exertion that quantifies the amount of physical and mental stress you're putting on your body. So they track the strain on a scale of 0 to 21. So both for the entire day and for specific workouts and activities. So you can start an activity or you can start a workout and it will monitor the strain for that specific thing. But then it also monitors strain over the entire day and it uses a, um, a, a, a scale or an equation for that which is based on um, Borg's rating of perceived exertion. And so we've got light strain, moderate strain, high strain, and then all out. And it's measured based on cardiovascular metrics and muscular load. So cardiovascular being your heart rate and the higher your heart rate gets and the longer it stays elevated, the more strain you accumulate. And then you can use what they have as like a strength trainer and that tracks your weights and reps and sets to understand demands you're putting on your musculoskeletal system. So then that can measure muscular load, uh, which can also uh, uh, determine our strain. So it gives us a total daily strain and then that definitely plays into, okay, our recovery uh, for for the next day also it gives us an optimal strain for the day based on our recovery so if my recovery is 92 percent and i had a really high hrv uh, i get a really high strain range whereas if i had a really poor recovery it's in the red i've got low hrv it's gonna give me a low strain range to reach The third thing that it's looking at is your recovery. So it's quantifying how your body is feeling. How is it recovering from life, from training? So the recovery score measures basically how your body's adapting to the stresses uh, of training, the lack of sleep, illness, your menstrual cycle. The more recovered you are, 
uh, the more your body is signaling that it's ready to take on more. Hence, then you get a higher strain score. The less recovered you are, the more the body is telling you that it's best to take it easy and you need to focus on recovery practices. So they it shows up like a personal fuel gauge or a fuel tank. It's a circle and when, you know, when the circle is uh, full, like a full tank of fuel, it's green. When it's half full, it's yellow or orange. And then when it's empty, it is red. And so it's calculating your recovery on a scale of zero to 100%. So 100% being 100% uh, recovered. And it's looking at your sleep, your heart rate variability, so your HRV, your resting heart rate, your respiratory rate, um, your oxygen, and your sleep performance and skin temperature to see how your body's adapting to uh, both physiological and the mental load, so the mental stress. So the biggest influence uh, on, on your recovery is your HRV. But it does also consider other, other things, other health behaviors, stress levels, hydration uh, that it, it also tracks. So basically what, what it's showing you is how ready is your body? You know, how ready is your body to take on and adapt to training, strain, stress, illness, uh, all of these things. And so it's coded in those color ranges. And then you want to see trends over time. So weekly, monthly, six monthly, yearly trends. And that can show you your, you know, if how you're actually living (laughs) You know, maybe you think that you're living in the green, but what it's showing you is you're actually living in the yellow or there is actually way more reds than you think. And basically, then we can develop strategies to get the most out of your rest and recovery. So it's really about connecting the dots from your behaviors or habits or practices to the actual data over time, to the trends, to your performance. And this is why we can log, you can log loads of stuff. So it has a daily journal where you can log a bunch of things. So in my journal, I log um, caffeine, uh, if I did zone two, if I took my magnesium supplement, if I slept with my eye mask, uh, my mouth tape, my earplugs, uh, if what day of my menstrual cycle I'm on, uh, all of all of these things that you can add to your journal. And over time, then it helps create this recovery impact analysis, which we'll talk about in a second. So I use how I use my whoop. I'm looking at five key things. So I'm looking at my sleep, my sleep performance, the quality of my sleep, I'm looking at my strain, so my overall strain for the day and my strain within certain activities and workouts. I look at my HRV, which is my recovery score. Uh, I look at my menstrual cycle. So not only the day that I'm on, but I also link the menstrual cycle to all of the other data that uh, the WHOOP shows me. Uh, And yeah, and the last one would be the recovery, which kind of ties in with with the HRV stuff. Uh, and so let's let's talk a little bit about recovery impact analysis. Basically, after logging certain uh, metrics, behaviors, things for a certain amount of time, it can create this analysis 
and it's showing you or telling you how your behavior uh, impacts your recovery over like the last 90 days. And so I've pulled mine up and I just wanted to talk you through how some of these things that I log in my journal uh, positively impact my recovery, which then therefore positively impacts my performance. And I'll talk through some things that actually negatively impact uh, my recovery as well. So the, the, the biggest one for me that has the most impact, positive impact on my recovery is menstruation. When I start to menstruate, I have a plus 12% positive impact on my recovery and my HRV. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in this section because this is something that I have really found interesting. It's something that I've learned and it's something that I'm really working on as a HRV project based on the menstrual cycle. So that is a plus 12% positive impact on my recovery. When I get 96 plus percent in sleep performance, that has a positive impact of plus 9%. The next one down is caffeine. So when I I drink coffee in the morning, I'll have one when I first wake up uh, and then one between 8 and 10, 10.30. Carson just said to me today, because he, we got home from the gym and we have an espresso machine here and he makes beautiful coffee here. But it was 10.30 and I was like, can you make me a coffee? He's like, it seems every year it gets earlier and earlier when that second coffee, when you can drink that second coffee. But caffeine actually has a plus 7% uh, positive impact on performance. Then an early workout has a plus 4% positive effect on my performance. So they classify an early workout uh, within three hours of waking up. And then a consistent wake time uh, has a plus uh, 2% positive impact on my performance. And then it also measures and tracks things that show a negative impact on your performance and your recovery. Uh, over time. So these are all trends where you have to log a certain amount for the analysis to happen. So there are some things that I have learned over the last 10, 11 months since wearing the Whoop that potentially I was aware of, but not from an an objective perspective. And, you know, I've spent over a decade, uh, really working on my connection to my body, learning about my body, understanding it, trusting it, but mostly from a subjective perspective. Uh, And so it was kind of cool to see some things objectively that I knew subjectively. (laughs) How many times can I say these words uh, in this podcast episode? So when I was talking about getting it uh, a year ago, Carson and I were were talking and and he said it would be interesting for someone like you who, you know, is very healthy, has a very healthy functioning body, uh, does sleep well, you know, pretty much recovers quite well. It'd be interesting to see 
what objective data shows uh, based on, you know, or compared to subjective data prior to a year ago uh, and still with confidence, I can say subjectively that I sleep pretty great, pretty freaking great. Uh, I would sleep well, quality of sleep, quantity of sleep. I recover pretty well. Uh, I can perform very well. Uh, you know, I, I knew these things subjectively and this was based on how I can show up in my life, you know, my work output in my training and my life and my business, uh, you know, just subjectively how I how I feel energy wise uh, and looking at all my other markers, my other biofeedback. So my menstrual cycle, doing temp and pulse work, my mood, uh, my bowels, my appetite, all of these metrics that I had measured subjectively over the last decade uh, were really strong. Mostly they trend strong. Now, sometimes they're not, but that's really normal. And so having the whoop basically solidify and confirm what I knew subjectively was pretty cool. It's kind of cool to get the get the acknowledgement that what you feel and what you're doing is actually working. And that's one of the, the cool things I think about wearing it for me was that I knew that I was doing all of the right things before based on how I felt and how I could show up and perform in my life and my training. But the whoop just, you know, gave me that gold star or that green light. Uh, But I did learn a few things that I didn't really know. One of them was that I'm in zone two a lot. So we've been speaking lately a little bit about building capacity, uh, you know, building our base. Uh, I had Libby on the podcast to speak about to speak about zone two. We're doing a lot of work inside of Warrior School with Warrior Queen 2.0 Play to Win on building our fitness, you know, building our capacity and doing zone two and other, you know, zone four and zone five training really builds that capacity, that resilience, that tolerance to stress. So I learned a lot because the cool thing with WHOOP is that it measures your zones. Uh, and so if you start an activity, it will tell you how long you're in that zone for. And now you could just work it out heart rate wise. So if you have a heart rate monitor, that's totally cool. But I kind of like seeing the five zones there. And then it gets this, you know, gives you really nice breakdown, colorful lines. Uh, and I'm sure other devices do this. I'm just speaking about the, the WHOOP, but I'm sure... Apple does this as well. And so I actually spend a lot of time in zone two when I walk Hank in the morning. Uh, you know, most mornings for about 20 minutes, at least out of the 50 or 60 minutes, I'm in zone two. When I strength train, I actually spend a good chunk of time in zone two. Again, it could be, you know, another 20 or so, even 30 minutes in zone two. Uh, and then I'm doing my zone two sessions on top of that. So my I'm actually accumulating what is recommended, which is about 80 minutes of zone two quite easily uh, through a lot of the activities that I'm already doing. 
So it's made me a little bit more interested in zone training along with learning a bit more about the benefits of HIT and SIT training from the work of Dr. Stacey Sims and my research. Uh, again, this is coming into me building out the performance pillar of Warrior School. So you'll see a lot of these things in that, in that performance pillar. The second thing that I really learned is the impact of the menstrual cycle on HRV and sleep performance. This has been really huge for me which I want to talk about uh, the HRV and the menstrual cycle. And I'm doing a bit of a project on it because I was quite shocked at how my HRV and my recovery really dropped off in that luteal phase of my cycle uh, as I start to after my ovulation. But I, I do want to talk about it because there's some interesting stuff around this the the HRV score and the menstrual cycle. So this was the second thing that I really learned and the other thing was that it really underpredicts uh, on energy burned. So the whoop underpredicts. I have learned that the Apple Watch overpredicts on total energy expenditure. So it's quite interesting when you start to see um, a lot of my other women, a lot of my women wear um, multiple different devices. So, you know, working with them, you get to see patterns of different devices and the pattern of the whoop tends to be an under prediction of total calories or energy burned over the day uh, and even in activities. And then the Apple Watch, I'm seeing a trend of an over uh, prediction of energy burned during the day. So that would be another thing that, you know, I learned not to base my total energy expenditure on my WHOOP. A more accurate way to look at that would be through a DEXA scan or using the equation that we use and, and working that out more manually. Uh, or even chronometer actually is quite accurate uh, when it comes to total energy intake and uh, energy burned. All right, I want to speak about HRV because for a while, mine was really shit. <laughs> it was low and not great. Uh, and so I've been, I've been doing a HRV project for a while and it has improved so much. And I want to talk a bit about it. But before I get into that, I just want to talk about the HRV and the menstrual cycle. So HRV is a metric that I believe the Aura Ring maybe even Apple Watch uh, and definitely the Whoop and other recovery tracking devices used to tell you how rested or ready you are. Essentially, that's their main metric for your recovery. And it is a good indicator, but like many other physiological factors, uh, our female hormones affect it. And so the number that we're seeing on these devices is not telling us the whole story. It's sometimes telling us a bit of a false story. And I think Dr. Stacey Sims actually wrote an article about this, which I'll try and find and pop in the show notes for, um, in, for the podcast. So basically the HRV is heart rate variability, and it's the result of the, you know, the, the interplay between our parasympathetic uh, part of our nervous system, so rest and digest, and the sympathetic part of our nervous system, so fight or flight. Uh, and 
It really describes the variability in time between your heartbeats. So when your HIV increases, that means your body is resilient to stress. When it decreases, you have less uh, stress resilience. Estrogen tends to increase our vagal tone. So the ability of our vagal nerve to regulate our heartbeat, which is uh, what the device measures to give the effect of the vagal nerve and overrides estrogen's effect on increasing vagal tone. So in naturally cycling women, so for me, I'm a naturally cycling woman. I don't, uh, woman, I don't take anything. Uh, when progesterone goes up in the second phase of my cycle, estrogen is still there, but progesterone is the dominant hormone. And so the progesterone decreases vagal tone. When progesterone drops, estrogen becomes the dominant hormone, which increases vagal tone. So at the first half of our cycle, when estrogen starts to rise and it's the dominant hormone, we've got a higher vagal tone, which means the ability of that vagal nerve to regulate our heartbeat. Uh, and then when we've got higher progesterone, we've got reduced vagal tone, which means we'll see a lower HRV. So in a woman who is premenopausal, naturally cycling, her HRV or my HRV is influenced by my menstrual cycle. So in that low hormone phase, that follicular phase, HRV is highest. And then once we ovulate and then the progesterone is the dominant hormone, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which in turn increases our resting heart rate and our respiratory rate, and it reduces HRV. So what does all this mean? <laughs> so our recovery metrics in our late luteal phase, in that you know late second half of our cycle, maybe the five, seven, 10 days before our bleed will always be lower compared to the follicular phase because of those changes to our autonomic nervous system and how they affect our HRV. So we may be recovered, but the devices are not showing that based on the algorithm. And the algorithm really under, um, doesn't understand those hormonal fluctuations. So we may get this false low recovery score telling us that we're not fully recovered when you actually are. And this is what I noticed on my device. So it was telling me that I wasn't fully recovered when potentially I actually was. My sleep performance was great. Uh, you know, I had nourished myself. I had got all of these other metrics, green lights essentially, but then my HRV was low and so my recovery was low. And I want you to note that what your device tells you and how you feel don't always match up. And this is what I've always said to my women, that the... You, you subjectively will always be a stronger measure of how well you, how well your body is recovering, feeling, functioning, performing. I just believe subjectively we're stronger than the objective data, especially when it comes to things like this, because the algorithms can't at the moment, and I think they're working on this uh, within, you know, the WHOOP lab, it just doesn't understand those hormonal fluctuations. And so it's potentially giving us a false low recovery score, even though we could be recovered. 
But of course, many of us do actually experience lower recovery during the late luteal phase because of this. And then there's other physiological changes. So this is why we need to work with our physiology during this time to help counter these effects uh, by addressing inflammation, uh, you know, really making sure that we're on top of our sleep, that we're eating enough uh, because of, you know, the peak and drop of sex hormones right before our period starts. What about in the menopause transition? So in uh, perimenopausal women and women postmenopause, our hormonal ratios are completely different. And uh, in postmenopausal women, they're flatlined. So we don't actually have the hormonal influences on the vagal nerve. Uh, well, they're altered. And in both cases, perimenopause and menopause, we really end up in more of a fight or flight, uh, I guess, um, activity or um, state and a less rest and digest state, especially after menopause. And there's really minimal research on active women in perimenopause and postmenopausal phases and, you know, their impact on the HRV. But what we do know is that HRV decreases in the menopause transition and a new baseline is established postmenopause. But we don't know... We don't know that much uh, and the current algorithms of wearable devices don't detect this change. So they can't accurately, accurately predict the true recovery because they don't actually know that you've got, you're in perimenopause and, uh, or postmenopause. But what we can do is monitor our trends and that's what we really need to look at. So just one low HRV score isn't bad. Uh, it's the trend over time. And so what I was noticing that my trend over time, especially in that second phase of my cycle, my HRV would just go to shit. Uh, and it was really frustrating me. And so I had to do some research around it because I was like, I feel like I am recovering. And I feel like all that my other biofeedback metric and data is strong. Why is this telling me that it's shit? And that's one reason. I have done a couple of other things, though, to really try and push up that HRV, especially in the second phase of my cycle. And that is I have added in more aerobic conditioning. So a big project for me this summer was to really build my aerobic base and fitness more, to run a lot more, to do a lot more zone twos. And I do feel like since the start of summer, since I've been adding in more uh, intentional zone two work, uh, even some zone three work, and then pushing into that uh, hit kind of sit sprint interval training, the zone four and five, uh, that it has improved my HRV. The second thing that I am doing is really playing around with... Uh, not so much my bedtime routine. I have a really strong bedtime routine, but I have a new eye mask. I have new earplugs. I've been taping my mouth for quite a while, but making sure I do that really consistently. I bought nose strips uh, and I really made my room darker and cooler. And I think that that is really helping. New eye mask, new earplugs, mouth tape, nose strip. <laughs> I actually look so damn sexy when I'm about to go to sleep. I have all of this stuff on my face. 
I'll try and get Carson to snap a picture of me when I wake up in the morning. That is the second thing that I have been trialing. And I'm what I have also noticed is that it increases over winter time. So my HRV goes up over winter. I sleep more. It's darker. It's cooler. Uh, and so the quality of my sleep, more REM sleep, uh, and I do sleep for longer, which I've had a higher HRV during uh, fall and winter compared to summer. The third thing is that I've done bouts of tracking my food. We're in one right now. We're doing Warrior Queen 2.0. And a really big part of that, there's a lot of tracking, a lot of food stuff. Uh, so a lot of the warriors can get some really cool body composition changes happening. And so I've been really tracking my food as well. And I've noticed that by, by tracking my food, really making sure that I'm eating enough consistently, trending, you know, at, at good maintenance, that that is also helping. Uh, the other thing I'm doing is I'm trying to eat earlier. So there is a bit of research. And what I have noticed is that if we eat late, that that well, that really impacts my HRV. Uh, so that is my little project that I am working on to improve my HRV. Would I recommend the Whoop? Yes, I would. I would recommend it over any of the other devices. One, I hate Apple Watches uh, because there's a screen and then you can see the screen uh, and you can also get everything on that screen. So all the emails, all the messages, everything. And I think that that, you know, chuck that Apple Watch away. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't want to say that. But for me personally, I don't want a screen on my wrist. That is one of my worst nightmares. Uh, I don't even love my phone. So I love the Whoop. It doesn't have a screen. So that's the, that was one big thing for me. I can't wear an aura ring because I train a lot. And I think that that would be really hard to lift weights with an aura ring on. It would get in the road. When I'm trying to do a lot of my gymnastic strength training on the bar, I don't want something on my on my finger. I can't even wear a ring when I'm lifting. So I didn't want a ring. Uh, and so I would recommend a whoop. Also, I think a lot of the work that they're doing, the science, the, the research is really cool. They're quite uh, innovative and they're, they've collaborated with some really cool people, Dr. Stacey Sims being one. And so they're really trying to make the algorithms and the device really supportive of female physiology, which I, which I really love. Okay, let's move on to the second question. How does alcohol impact our hormones? Now, I will say introducing this that there is an amazing podcast by Dr. Andrew Huberman. So the Huberman Lab, uh, which is phenomenal. He is uh, a very intelligent, uh, extremely handsome man that has the sexiest voice. So I just, I just love listening to him because of his voice. But he's also very smart and he does a lot of podcasts where he goes very, very deep, like three hours deep, three hour penetration into topics. And he has some very amazing guests on. He has done a very cool podcast episode on what alcohol does to your body, brain and health. 
I highly recommend that you listen to it. So I'm not going to go super deep into this topic. I'm not an expert on alcohol and its impact on our body, brain and health. Uh, he does an, a fantastic job of of talking about this topic. So I'm going to link it in the show notes. I highly recommend that you listen to it. But basically, when we're talking about the alcohol we drink as a beverage, uh, and this is what I assume this woman who asked me about alcohol was talking about, we're really talking about uh, ethanol, which is this organic liquid produced by natural fermentation of sugars. So alcohol is water and fat soluble. And since our cells are water and fat, it's easily absorbed into virtually all the cells in our body. So there, there's no nicer way to put it, but alcohol and its breakdown products, and there's, there's a few um, break, uh, products, byproducts of ethanol, act as cellular toxins. They are toxins. It is poison that is going into our body, including our brain cells, which not only affects our mood and behaviors, but it affects our brain's hormonal signaling. Uh, And this is really significant because ovarian, thyroid, and adrenal gland function all start in the brain, in the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Uh, And so... Today, I'm going to talk mostly about alcohol and how it impacts our hormones, but there is loads of research. And in that podcast with Huberman, he goes into looking at it uh, in the entire body, especially the brain uh, and the the other health implications of, of drinking alcohol. So men and women actually metabolize it at different rates. And so this is uh, women actually also eliminate it more slowly than men. And so these physiological differences, and there's a lot, we have a lot of physiological differences between males uh, and females, and it's only just starting to really be, be, be recognized in the sport and exercise science space. But uh these differences, and, and there are others, contribute to uh, a, a woman's higher susceptibility to alcohol-related liver and heart disease and negative impacts on not just mood, but brain health. So basically, women are impacted a lot more than men. And because of our different metabolism and the risks, they actually have established uh different recommended upper limits of alcohol intake and they're actually lower for women than men so for women moderate drinking is defined as one or less drink per day binge drinking is defined as four or more drinks any one time heavy drinking is defined as three or more drinks per day or seven or more drinks per week and that's a lot (laughs) Uh, I, I'll say I do not drink alcohol. I have not had, uh, an alcoholic drink or beverage for probably over a decade, maybe even more. Uh, I have drank before during high school and university And when I first moved to Melbourne, I drank a little bit, but 
I haven't drank in a really long time. I do not like the taste of it. I hate the taste of it. Uh, I've had a couple of sips every now and then when Carson gets a really good quality of wine when we go out to dinner, but I can't handle any more than the tiniest sip. Uh, I I get the sh- I get shivers in my body, and I just get I have this reaction of like, like I just I ha- I hate the smell of it. I hate the taste of it. Uh, and so I don't drink and I haven't drank for, for over a decade. And I'm not saying that you can't drink. <laughs> I'm just going to give you the facts about how it affects your health, your hormones. Um, and Whoop has actually done a lot of research on how much it actually plummets your HRV and it affects your sleep quality, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second. But yeah, I'm just going to let you know that I do not drink alcohol at all zero alcohol drinks uh, in a very long time so I just wanted to talk about the French paradox for for a little bit because I'll always get well what about the benefits found in red wine you know it's an antioxidant and it's a cellular it protects your cells uh And yes, maybe they found a little bit of a benefit, uh, which is questionable based on some of the research, Uh, but we can have less harmful and actually more healthful sources of these antioxidants uh, that are found in wine in, in other sources. So including actual grapes, peanuts, cocoa, blueberries, um, cranberries, or in a supplement form. Uh, so I'm not sure if the, the tiny benefit of that antioxidant actually outweighs the harmful effects of alcohol on your hormones and your health. So basically the French paradox is this idea that people in cultures where wine is taken daily, so with meals, live longer. And yes, there are cultures in uh, the world in which alcohol consumption is part of daily life and people live well, you know, into their 90s, maybe even hundreds. But the common denominator uh, is not the alcohol. It is a complex set of factors, including the diet that they are eating, their community, their daily lives, um, their stress, their daily movement, uh, and any other maybe specific anti-aging, you know, foods or beverages that they consume in that culture uh, that contribute to them living longer. If you look at some of the <laughs> new longevity research from, you know, Huberman Lab and Peter Atia, they ain't saying drink wine every day to live longer. It, um, there are other stronger variables within the culture that is contributing to the longevity. So the, the French paradox actually just became the justification for a massive branding campaign, of course. <laughs> uh, and it was used by the alcohol industry in the US to really revitalize wine sales, uh, which it really did. Uh, and it was also a long the sales of Fragoir as well <laughs> that actually got revitalized and they sold a lot of wine and a lot of Fragoir 
And even while, uh, you know, there were there were prominent people saying that the French paradox is a hoax, you know, this concept of red wine being good for us really stuck and has, has persisted for a really long uh, period of time. Now, there is a really big difference between having, you know, a small glass of a beautiful red wine once every so often to drinking it every day uh, or every night. Huge difference. And so a lot, what a lot of these people in the longevity space and the health space are saying, what I'm saying today uh, is that it's not about never having it if you enjoy a beautiful glass of red wine or if you enjoy a beautiful crafted you know cocktail it's about how much are you drinking and why are you drinking it it's always about the dosage of it so the research it's talked about a lot uh you know coaches talk about it health practitioners talk about it hormonal health people talk about it uh you would think that there is an astonishing amount of research out there and there is you know there is uh and there is research but when i was doing my research <laughs> i found that alcohol intake has been subjected to only two randomized trials one year or longer in length. So our understanding of its health effects uh, long-term are quite limited. And a safe amount hasn't really been established. There is no healthy amount. (laughs) Uh, What they do say, it's a luxury and it's not part or shouldn't be part of a healthy diet or lifestyle. But there's no study that can prove that drinking in any amount is more healthful than not drinking at all. And for women, having even just one to three drinks per week, uh, and when I say one to three drinks, I mean the measured amounts that we just previously discussed, has been implicated in some specific risks, which we can talk about. But there's actually not a huge body of research when we're looking at women, alcohol, hormones, and health. Uh, We do have some data, but again, when it comes to studying this kind of stuff, there are so many variables. So sometimes it's quite um, contradictory. It's not clear. It's very gray. And that could be because of the study size. So the sample size, uh, the quality of the study, uh, where women were in their cycle, their phase of their cycle, was that adequately, adequately assessed? You know, what are the other variables? What are their stress? What does their food intake look like? Um, So we're just going to talk about or focus on estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Uh, And I'll also just touch quickly on cortisol and insulin because they can be strongly influenced uh, by alcohol as well. So basically we have hormones, which are chemical messengers that control and coordinate uh, functions of our whole body. So all the tissues and all the organs, the hormones run the show. They are like the queen, the queen B, the queen H. And each hormone is secreted from a particular gland and then it's distributed throughout the body and it acts on tissues at different sites. So two areas of the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, release hormones and as do our glands, so in other parts of the body. So we have the thyroid gland, the adrenal gland, the ovaries and the pancreas. Now, the proper functioning of most of our body systems relies on the finely tuned release of these hormones. So they are like a a fine-tuned 
symphony. (laughs) Uh, And alcohol has been shown to alter and impair the functions of the hormone releasing glands as well as that of the target tissues. So they've done some animal studies uh, and they've shown that acute alcohol um, intake affects the release of the hormones from the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So most of the research uh, is talking about this uh, increased rate of aromatization of testosterone. So what that means is there's an increased conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And there was a review paper done, which was published in the early 2000s uh, uh, in the journal Alcohol. (laughs) There's a journal that does research on alcohol and what they found was that this increased level of estrogen was because of this uh, aromatization of testosterone. And potentially that's why females uh, can have an increased risk of estrogen-related cancers. So there can be estrogen-related cancers like breast cancer. Uh, It can be estrogen-related and non-estrogen-related. And so they're finding that that could be a reason why we get this um, increased levels of estrogen. Uh, It's also got to do and linked with, you know, a lot of we have to detoxify uh, alcohol and and estrogen out of the liver. And that's where I believe the aromatization is happening, um, where this conversion is happening. Uh, I'm not 100 percent. Again, I'm not uh, I'm not an expert on uh, uh, alcohol and the, the, the metabolism of alcohol. But I believe the pathway that we need to, to detoxify estrogen is the same pathway that the alcohol uses. And because alcohol is a toxin, it's a poison, we can't keep it in the body. The body's got to get ri- rid of it. It's got to metabolize it and, and detoxify it. that gets right away first and so the alcohol is going to get out and so then therefore there is can become a detoxification problem with with estrogen uh, I believe and I believe Huberman goes into that a little bit deeper in his podcast Uh, alcohol also affects our sleep and so it's a really big circadian rhythm disruptor and there's some cool uh, data coming out now with with the tracking devices. So Whoop's done quite a bit of research uh, on uh, our sleep, our quality of our sleep, our HRV and the consumption of alcohol. And so even acute drinking. So remember when when we're referencing alcohol intake, we have uh, acute and chronic. So acute is, you know, just, just a glass of wine uh, or half a glass of wine, you know, just one point in time chronic is you know chronically drinking multiple multiple drinks multiple times you know for a longer period of time Uh, and so some of the studies are looking at acute alcohol consumption just one point in time and measuring certain things Uh, other studies and there's not a lot of them are looking at more chronic long-term use of um, alcohol consumption. And then remember, you've got the amount of alcohol that you're drinking as well. But uh, acute drinking, uh, even one glass of wine for some women can act as a very significant circadian rhythm disruptor. 
and really noticeably affect their sleep. Uh, And so what they're finding is that it drops HRV. Basically, it's a sedative. And, you know, a lot of women will say it helps me relax. uh, It helps me get to sleep. But it's sedating you. And soon after falling asleep, your body usually enters that deep sleep. So that um, slow sleep wave, which is the stage of sleep, which uh, restores you physically. Uh, And after that, we then typically enter a cycle where we go into REM sleep. And that's where we mentally restore ourselves, the, the mentally restorative stage. So when your body is sedated, it must work to process the alcohol in the system while sleeping. So it's unable to reach these restorative stages. So we get a lot of light sleep. Uh, And so we could be sleeping for a long time, but we're actually not getting the proper restorative sleep, which is going to impact our uh, biofeedback, our metric, our recovery, uh, and our ability to to perform the next day in training and our life. So she, she's a sedative. Uh, she's, she ain't a good sleep aid. There are many other things that you can do to support your sleep and drinking ain't one of them. There's also research on alcohol affecting our gut health. It changes the microbiome in our gut and causes, you know, leaky gut, um, uh, an inflamed gut. So if you have any type of gut stuff going on, bowel stuff, uh, Drinking alcohol is not helping that. It, uh, you know, remember our gut, uh, the gut brain connection, the gut plays a huge role in our hormonal health as well. And so the alcohol, if it's changing our gut microbiome, uh, that is obviously impacting our ability to, uh, you know, digest and absorb our food and our nutrients you know it actually stops us from absorbing some really key nutrients they call it empty calories it's an anti-nutrient thing meaning that it not only does it provide any nutritional value it also uses up other important nutrients like our b vitamins and then it's affecting our gut health there's also research around its impact on insulin and blood sugar control which i won't go into today Uh, There is a couple of pieces out of that podcast that I found interesting. One was that people who drink regularly, so just one to two drinks per night, or it could just be somebody that drinks on Fridays or Saturdays, uh, or maybe just on the weekend, like two to four drinks. Those people experience changes in their HPA access that result in more cortisol. So that's a stress hormone being released at baseline when they are not drinking. And I thought that was really fascinating. And Huberman goes into it a little bit more in the podcast, but essentially it impacts our cortisol. And a lot of women, you know, a lot of you that are in your 30s and 40s, uh, you know, even mid to late 40s, you're going to enter this, this second phase of your life where you're going into perimenopause and menopause. You've already got higher levels of baseline cortisol. You're less resilient and tolerant to stress. And so then if you aren't sleeping well, you're not eating enough, you're not training the right way and you're drinking alcohol, really it's a cocktail for a disaster, for hormonal chaos. Uh, And actually what's happening by you drinking alcohol is that 
you are releasing more cortisol at baseline when you're not actually drinking. And if you already have elevated cortisol levels because you don't have strong biofeedback, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you're in that season of your life where you're in perimenopause and menopause, that ain't great. (laughs) So she doesn't have any benefits for you. There are no benefits to drinking alcohol uh, whatsoever. And most likely she's going to have a negative effect on your energy, uh, you building and creating the body that you love, on your body composition, on your sleep, uh, on, on your hormones. And so I am not recommending anything here on the podcast. Uh, I'm just delivering up some of the research on a hot little platter for you. You are a big girl. You can put your big girl pants on and decide Uh, But what I will say is that she's probably not helping you achieve your vision for your life. Okay, last uh, thing we're going to talk about today is how do you breathe and brace for lifts? So we'll talk about why breathing and bracing matters when it comes to lifting weights, lifting, lifting heavy. And we'll talk about the components of um, proper breathing and bracing. So basically, when we're talking about breathing and bracing, we're talking about using our breath uh, and using our abs or our core to help us lift more weight. So the core is anything that is part of your trunk. So your trunk is like that middle section, your torso, you know, that's uh, underneath your underneath your boobs uh, and that's above your mid thigh because don't forget you've got your your vagina and your pelvic floor so the it's including but not limited to but these are the main ones your rectus abdominis which is like your ab muscles your internal and external obliques which are the side side muscles your transverse abdominis which is this big muscle that's like deep inside that runs from kind of the front of your hips around your back your spinal erectors, so they're the muscles that run down your spine, your deep hip flexors, your pelvic floor, and your diaphragm. So all of these muscles are really important. Your trunk, your torso, your core plays a really key role in uh, connecting your breath and being able to brace, have the strength to brace uh, that, that trunk section. So why is breathing and bracing important? Why does it matter? So breath control, so the ability to control your breath is critical for increasing and maintaining uh, well, inter-abdominal pressure and the structural integrity of the torso while under heavy loads. So basically the supporting muscles uh, alone are inadequate to stabilize your spine. And so we really need to pressurize our um, abdominal section and our thoracic cavities to create more stability, more tension with that trunk section. And we're doing that to help stabilize the spine. Uh, Because if you think about like feeling your ribs and then from under your ribs to the top of your pelvis, there's nothing there. It's soft tissue. It can move really well. So bend to the side, twist and rotate. So when we're under really heavy loads, we can't have this like noodly wobbly spine that has no tension. 
are one that that stops us from lifting heavy weight and two it increases the risk of injury uh, and so what we need to do we need to create this really broad base for the torso to sit on as possible so you want to think of it think of the pyramid that I always talk about we want a pyramid that sits with the the big base at the bottom and the point at the top and we want to think about our breathing and bracing as creating that pyramid for the load to sit on top now if we add lots of load to that point with a really strong base uh, it's going to be able to hold it If we tip the pyramid the other way and we've got the point facing the ground and we add a lot of load onto it, it's going to crumble that point of the pyramid. So essentially breathing and bracing is creating a big strong base for the torso, for that middle section, and it's going to support uh, our spine because the torso only has a single supporting structure along its height and that is the spine. So... uh, The spine can articulate in all of these directions. So we need additional support. And this is why you see uh, people sometimes wear things like uh, weightlifting belts. And they're doing that to maintain the rigidity of the spine. So the weak point for us is the circumference below the rib cage. This is where there's no rigid structure. And this is where you often see people put this weight belt. Uh, So we've got a lot of organs uh, that fill this space. Uh, And then we've got the diaphragm and above this, uh, so we've got the organs and then the diaphragm and then above that we've got the lungs. And the, when we feel the lungs, we increase the rigidity of the thoracic cavity. So your thoracic spine is like directly behind kind of your chest around where your ribs are. And we can also force the diaphragm down, which compresses the organs of the abdominal cavity. So to improve, uh, so to the, it's all about compression. So we want to create compression. We want to create tension within that middle section of our body. So to improve further compression, we can tighten the muscles around our torso. Uh, so basically we can brace, so we can brace our abs And that will prevent any unwanted expansion of all of these walls, this this middle section. And that reduces the potential for the torso to collapse or for us to potentially, you know, injure, injure the spine or our back. So the pressure, we're creating pressure to improve rigidity. We're also creating tension with our abs to improve rigidity. And what happens is that it increases the force transfer from the legs and the hips to the barbell. So basically, by creating that pressure, that rigidity, we increase the strength. Uh, We can lift more weight and it also helps prevent that extension of the spine that we could get that could um, result in injury. So without what we basically need is we need adequate abdominal strength. So it doesn't matter how good your breathing is. So there's two parts to it. We've got the breathing part. Do you know how to breathe properly? Sounds like such a funny question to ask. Uh, Do you know how to breathe properly? You know, do you know how to breathe into the chest, into the belly, into the diaphragm? Do you know how to 
to inhale and exhale. And then we've got the other part, which is, do you know how to brace? So do you know how to brace, um, to brace your abs? So we need that abdominal strength. So it doesn't matter if you know how to technically breathe, if you're weak, if you have weak abdominal muscles. <laughs> uh, so one of the first and easiest ways we can improve trunk strength is to learn how to breathe and train the core. So one of the first things I do in warrior school is to teach women 360 degree breathing. Uh, so how we breathe in you know 360 degree space in our in our trunk. You know how we use our chest, our lungs, our diaphragm, and our pelvic floor to breathe, both inhaling and exhaling. You know expanding and drawing up. And then the second thing that we do inside of Warrior School is I train their core. So we do a lot of core work and that's isometric holds, um, it's side bending, it's extending, it's flexing. So we train the entire torso or midsection and we get that really strong. We need both. We need to know how to breathe and we need a strong core. So some common terms you'll hear is the Valsalva maneuver. You'll hear about diaphragmatic breathing. You'll hear about intra-abdominal pressure. So I just wanted to touch on a couple of those terms that you'll hear. Uh, and then we'll look at how, you know, how we breathe and how we brace when we lift. So Vasalva maneuver, basically, instead of simply breathing air and holding it, the, this maneuver is forcefully expiring against a closed glottis, which is the opening between the vocal folds or the throat. So closing the glottis keeps the air from escaping the lungs. And that way we keep the air in, but we're contracting to keep rigid uh, through the trunk and the upper back. Uh, they talk about uh, this a lot when it comes to uh, pregnancy and it not being a great thing to do when you are pregnant. Also, if you have pelvic floor uh, dysfunction and issues. Vasalvan maneuver is also not a great thing to do. If you have blood pressure issues, it causes, you know, it can cause um, some funky stuff going on with our blood pressure. Diaphragmatic breathing technique is also known as abdominal breathing or belly breathing, deep breathing. And this is really where the air enters the lungs and the belly expands. So it's when it's done correctly, uh, the trunk, so the whole thing expands 360 degrees. That's what we want to think about. We're not just thinking about pushing our belly out. Uh, we're thinking about breathing into our sides and breathing into our back. So we call it 360 degree breathing. Uh, it's, and there's no right or wrong you know, when it comes to, to breathing, we, we want to use, and I've done a podcast with uh, Dr. Katie Havener, who's an osteopath. I'll put it in the show notes. I believe it's episode 56, 86. It's episode 86. How to get more out of training with the breath, essentially. And uh, she talks about how we need to breathe into, we really have five diaphragms, one's in our brain, one's, you know, in our chest, and then we've got our diaphragm. And then, you know, it's really, really cool, actually. And essentially, we want to be breathing into everything. So yes, we want to breathe into our chest, our lungs, our belly, our pelvic floor, our diaphragm. Uh, we want to fill 
and brace all of that for full stabilization to be achieved. Uh, and then we've got intra-abdominal pressure. And this is the combination of uh, the salva maneuver and the diaphragmatic breathing technique. And what that does, it really just creates this pressure inside the abdomen and that increases stability in the trunk. Then we contract the abdomen, so the lower back, the bullet obliques, all of these muscles, these core muscles contract. They've got a lot of tension there and that redistributes tension in the body and redirects the force and power created through that kind of kinetic chain while lifting. So essentially it's like this powerful, cool, like superpower kinetic chain thing that produces tension in the entire body and allows us to actually pull a lot of heavy load off the floor or squat a lot of heavy weight. Now, many females are actually taught to brace wrong. Uh, You know, we're taught to take in this massive big air to hold our breath and to bear down on our pelvic floor. So the way that I've been taught, uh, the way you'll hear Dr. Katie talk about it, and I believe I also talk about it with the vagina coach uh, in the podcast episode that I did with her on pelvic floor dysfunction, is that when we're inhaling, we want to inhale into the chest, into the belly, into the diaphragm, into the pelvic floor. So we want to create this expansion, this 360 degree breath in then we actually want to create a brace. And so we want to think about drawing our pelvic floor up uh, like like you're pulling a blueberry up with your pelvic floor, a blueberry up into your vagina. And then you want to pull your rib cage down and you want to think about someone's punching you in the stomach and you're not actually drawing everything in and like (gasps) sucking in you're actually pushing your your belly out a little bit, but you're tensing your abs and you're drawing your rib cage down. And so it's not this breathe in and expand everything and push brace down or bear down on your pelvic floor. It's big inhale, 360 degree breath, draw your blueberry up and then pull your ribs down and then brace your abs. And so you want to imagine someone's going to punch you and you want to brace your abs so they can't hurt you when when they punch you. So often a lot of women are putting a lot of pressure on their pelvic floor because they're like bearing down. Uh, And that's what we do when we poo. And it isn't what we want you to do when you're lifting. You don't want to think about pooing and like... pushing and bearing down it puts way too much pressure on the pelvic floor I've done it before it's not pleasant it can cause some pelvic floor dysfunction Uh, so there are a couple of different ways that we can breathe when lifting and this is true whether you're not pregnant you're pregnant postpartum and they are the free breathing so just freely breathing if you're doing something that doesn't it's not a one RM. It's not like super heavy. You can just freely breathe. I often encourage my women to do nasal breathing and they're just freely breathing, trying to breathe into all of, you know, all of their, their chest, their belly, the diaphragm, 360 degree breathing. There's like breathing out on exertion and then there's a the Valsava maneuver. Uh, and it just depends on what you're doing. So how you breathe for a one RM is going to be different to how you breathe maybe for 
doing 10 moderately weighted goblet squats. Uh, And so the heavier the load, uh, the more important the breathing and the bracing becomes. So the easiest way to understand it is that it's like a pressure gauge. When you hold your breath, the pressure goes up. When you let go of your breath, so when you exhale, the pressure goes down. uh, And you want the pressure to go up if you're trying to lift as heavy as you can. You want lots of pressure, lots of intra-abdominal pressure. You need a lot of tension and a lot of support. Uh, And then, you know, if we have a lot of leaking issues or pelvic floor issues, if we're pregnant, you know, we don't want obviously a lot of pressure. We want the pressure to go down. Uh, And so we can control that pressure gauge with uh, how we're breathing and how hard we're bracing. So when you lift a heavy weight off the ground, what I hope you're doing and maybe what you're probably doing is Valsalva, which is when you brace your core really tight, you hold your breath and then you lift something up or you move something heavy. Or when you're setting up for a squat, you know, you you breathe in, you brace, you hold your breath, you go down uh, and then you're, you're exhaling on the way up. And the reason why we do that is it makes us stronger. It gives us more stiffness and that's a good thing. But, you know, there are there are contraindications, you know, if we're pregnant or we're postpartum or we have pelvic floor dysfunction that we don't want to do that. Uh, There's also some blood pressure stuff, as I said, you know, Valsalva can increase our blood pressure. Uh, And again, this is okay, but something that we really want to check with our team, uh, our pelvic floor specialist, our doctor, our OBGYN uh, when we are pregnant or postpartum. So our intra-abdominal pressure goes up and there's a lot of tension and force on the belly and that's a good thing from a performance perspective and we want to use it a lot when we lift heavy. It will help us move more weight and this increase on our core muscles and our pelvic floor isn't a bad thing. Yeah, the pressure has to go up somewhere and uh, it's okay. It's just that we need to consider, are we ready to to lift really heavy? You know, we, we definitely need, um, if, we, if we've been pregnant or we're postpartum or we have pelvic floor dysfunction, we definitely want to see a pelvic floor physio. Uh, see a pelvic floor specialist. I highly recommend, actually recommend all women to see one. Even women, you know, uh, who haven't uh, birthed a little human into the world, just to check their pelvic floor dis- uh, function. Are they hypertonic? Are they, do they know, do you know how to, you know, activate your pelvic floor? Do you know how to draw it up? Do you know how to relax it? Uh, and so I would highly recommend seeing a pelvic floor specialist uh, second thing, I would highly recommend learning how to lift properly. So getting someone to teach you how to actually lift properly and then getting someone, to, uh, having someone teach you how to actually breathe and brace during each lift is also really important. So basically the key thing is that we don't want to push our belly out. We want to think about 360 degrees, breathing into that full kind of 360 degree corset. We want tension throughout the core. 
Uh, and the easiest way to do this is to stick your thumbs into your sides and then perform the Valsalva maneuver. So thick, stick your thumbs into, so you'll feel your hips and just into the top of your hips there where your obliques are. So stick your thumbs there. And then if you do your breathing properly, so you're inhaling and you're thinking about 360 degree breathing, you should feel uh, your obliques pushing your thumbs out. And so this may take a little while to perfect, but you should prioritize this in your training. If you plan on lifting heavy for a long time, you have to prioritize learning how to breathe and getting a strong core. So doing a lot of abs. So I've done a couple of podcast episodes that I recommend you check out. Uh, episode 135, which was preventing and overcoming pelvic floor dysfunction with the vagina coach, Kim Votney. And the other one was episode 86, how to get more out of your training using the breath with Dr. Katie Havenar. Okay, I told you, she was meaty, she was beefy, she was juicy. And that was just part one. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening. And I will see you soon for part two. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't, please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another Warrior Woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, Warrior Woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.